welcome to the Pemsplainers. I'm Danielle Crittenden, and I am so excited to introduce the second of our summer author series. This episode is going to feature Daphne Merkin and Megan Dom. Our theme is going to be about sexual obsession. Daphne Merkin is, I want to say, a fable journalist, critic, and author, and most recently of the novel 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love. She's contributed to the New York Times, the New Yorker, New York Magazine, pretty much every publication you can think of. And she's also been a important and impressive uh, feminist questioner of the Me Too movement, certainly of the aspects that, as we've talked so many times on this show, um, about that treat women, seems to treat women as children without sexual agency and passions of their own. So that we'll get all into that. Um, well, uh, she also has some pretty shocking revelations that she discovered while reporting on Mia Farrow, Woody Allen, and Sunyi Praven, Woody Allen's uh, wife. Um, it's pretty juicy, um, so stay tuned for that. We'll also welcome back the wonderful Megan Dom, author of the recent The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. She joined us in the fall just after that book was published. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to first thank all of our subscribers uh, for supporting the podcast, especially right now. Um, if you followed us on any of our social platforms this past week, you'll know that we came under siege for our last episode with Wall Street Journal contributor Abigail Schreier and The Atlantic's Caitlin Flanagan, who was my co-splainer for that episode. Abigail has just released the book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. It's about the sudden rise of peer groups of teenage girls abruptly and en masse demanding radical medical intervention, from testosterone injections to puberty blockers to even double mastectomies, without otherwise having shown previously any sign of gender dysmorphia or a desire to be the opposite sex. So what's going on with that? And although our conversation was focused on the origins and consequences of this disturbing new trend as an issue of young women's mental health, some activists, as was to be expected, went on a campaign to brand us as transphobic. Now, there's no need to rehash ours or their arguments that took place over social media. We hope you'll listen to the podcast if you haven't already and, and see for yourself that we never stated any opinion or view that might possibly be construed as transphobic. In fact, quite the opposite. However, these activists took particular offense to an image we used on our social media. It showed the chest of a teenage trans boy after a double mastectomy. And while his face was visible, there was no way to identify him. He was looking down. His features were sort of dark and shadowed. But shortly after posting, we received a direct message from the now trans man whose image it was. And he demanded that we remove the photo or face legal action. His objection was that a photo of his very raw surgical scars as a teen should not be illustrating a viewpoint with which he disagreed. Our issue with his demand was that the image had been widely circulated and republished on multiple public platforms. We had, in fact, violated no copyright law. And the power of the photo to us, one of the most powerful images, frankly, that we found, was that it served of, as like a harrowing warning to any teenage girl who might seek this kind of irreparable surgery at such an immature age 
potentially ignorant of its long-term physical consequences, and without being absolutely certain that this was how she wished to be and appear for the rest of her life. That was the premise of the whole podcast. Anyway, you know here at the Femsplainers, we like to settle things over a pint, or rather a glass of wine, so we took down the image and said we'd repost it with the head and face cropped out, which we did. But this was not acceptable to the young man, nor, apparently, to many of his followers and friends. They promptly began mobbing our social media accounts and reporting us to the higher powers as promoters of hate speech. We decided to stand our ground and stick to our right to publish the image. Within a few hours, we received a notification from Twitter saying they received complaints about the post, but that it did not violate any of Twitter's rules. In short, it could stay up. I'm recounting this mostly to stress why your listener support means so much to us. If we are to fight cancel culture, and I mean cancel culture from both the left and the right, and continue to have these important conversations, it's nice to know you have our back. So many of you reached out to tell us so, and we were deeply grateful for it. So if you're not already a supporter, please consider becoming one at patreon.com slash femsplainers or at glow.com slash femsplainers. Even just $1 a month helps. Like, seriously, $1 a month. And for that, you'll receive our bonus monthly episode in which you get to ask the questions of our guests and join the conversation. You'll also receive our monthly newsletter that takes you behind the scenes. Last short announcement before I bring on our guests. As many of you may have noticed, my beloved co-splainer, Christina Hoff Summers, has not been joining the podcast lately. That's because at some point in the COVID quarantine, really all time is blurring right now, she asked to take a break from regular podcasting. Among other things, Christina was building a new screen porch on her house and wanted to attend to that. Now that the porch is built, she's of course too happy to ever come off of it. And she's decided to retire from the Femsplainers as well as from some other demands on her time. It's of course understandable, if very sad for us, and, and especially me, not least because I hate drinking alone. But I'm also not yet ready to retire my, to my own screen porch. I really love hanging out with all of you and continuing our fascinating conversations with so many extraordinary people. So for the rest of our summer author series, I'll be joined by Fabulous and some of your favorite co-splainers, the podcast will then take a break in August, and when we resume in the fall, I'll be announcing a stellar new panel of regular co-splainers, along with an exciting lineup of guests and topics. I hope you'll stay with us, stay with me, and as always, we welcome your feedback and comments. Reach out to us at contact at femsplainers.com or go to femsplainers.com for all the other ways to connect with us, follow us, and support us. Now, let's get on with the show. If you, like me, have been spending some of your time in quarantine fixing up your house, or maybe just noticing everything that's wrong with it, there are small ways to make your home feel more comfortable and luxurious without breaking the bank. And one of them is by upgrading your linens and towels. Now, you've heard us talk about Brooklinen before and how they're the home of the internet's favorite sheets. And also my favorite sheets for summer, spun from the lushest and lightest linen. But their towels? They're also amazing. There came a point when I realized my towels were so old, they were exfoliating rather than drying me. 
Ah, but the Brooklyn Intels, they're so plush. It's like the perfect hug to start my day off right. Like a little, you're going to do great. And you know what? They're so cozy and warm. I believe them. They embrace me. And you know what? These days, it's perfectly fine to stay in your towel all day after you shower. Sometimes I'll just stay in my towel till I'm ready to shower again. That's called efficiency. And Brooklinen towels not only make it possible, they make it comfortable. Brooklinen is the perfect place to find all the comforts for home, including these ultra soft towels. They're so confident in their product that everything comes with a lifetime warranty. Use promo code FEMSPLAIN for 10% off your first order at Brooklyn, brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code FEMSPLAIN. Welcome, Daphne and Megan, to the Femsplainers. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I see. Here. Well, to our <laughs> listeners who are not going to be watching this or hearing this on, um, on YouTube, Megan's in a very rural farmhouse in Virginia. I'm up by a lake in Canada, and you, Daphne, hung in in New York City, looks like. Yes. Not totally uh, willingly, but I'm here. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we, th- we, were, we were talking just before you came on that, that really the topics we wanted to cover today, uh, especially including your new novel, uh, 22 Minutes of Unconditional Love, really revolves around sexual obsession. Um, and one of the things I found so interesting about your novel, which um, I, I, I think is marvelously written and 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 Thank just you. gripping it's it's also like a novel that i miss the kind of novel that i miss because i read a lot of these types of sort of literary women's literary not just women's but you know literary novels that featured a lot of sex and some philosophy and i miss sex among that. smart people sex yes. among smart people um, Yes, I'm usually on the upper east side. Lost, upper west side. I love this. I love this. But it was also, as we know, very sexually graphic. But again, in a way that was not sort of, you know, whatever Fifty Shades of Grey, just sort of porn or cheesy. It was. It was really true and real. So, but we also know that it took you like thirty years to write this. So, Daphne, why did it take you so long? Partly because I'm a staggering procrastinator. <laughs> partly because I got the contract to write this novel 30 years ago. I don't know if anyone remembers the press. It was called Poseidon. Mm-hmm. I think they, they published Mary Gateskill. And I got the advance by describing what I wanted to write about to two editors there and I said I was curious to I wanted to write about a woman 
who got involved in a, if you want to call it sadomasochistic or, I wanted once to call the book Bad Taste. The book had many titles. <laughs> the first one was The Discovery of Sex for many years, which I decided was too frontal. <laughs> and I said that in these novels where a woman gets obsessed, like even Anna Karenina, they end up committing suicide. Nine and a half weeks, she ends up, I think, being implicitly hospitalized. No one has written, a lot of women, I, hope, I think, I don't hope, I think get involved in relationships that are like not good for them. They can't all end up dead or institutionalized. So I wanted to try and write a novel about how does a woman eventually get out of this, especially if it's sexually addictive. But after I signed the contract, I got to page 212. We're not to give too much away. The narrator, who, I re who as usual, everyone would read as me, is asked to crawl across the floor. Ooh. I stopped dead. The publisher liked it a lot, my editor. I come from an Orthodox Jewish family. I kept thinking, what are the women in the women's section going to think of me? My father was the founder of the synagogue. My whole family is modern Orthodox. I am strayed, I mean, not there. And I just felt I wasn't up to the mixture of outrage. Um, why is she writing about these perverted longings? I mean, I also grew up in a background where sex is kept not hidden like the Hasidic community, right. but downplayed. And were you supposed to be very community minded, you know? not write about things that would cast a shadow on the Jewish community. Um, I pulled the novel back. I tried over the years to rewrite it, not hundreds of ways. About two years ago, when Me Too had just broken out, I went back to it, changed it a lot. It's, it's told retrospectively, the woman is out of it and married and pregnant with a second child. But she looks back on this sexually exciting, dominant affair. I was sufficiently, I, I mentioned Danielle, I don't know, Megan, if you ever saw it, but I wrote an op-ed two years ago about Me Too in the Times, what women, what women really say as opposed to what they think, what they really think. Mm -hmm. That was a classic of the genre. Right. It and was. Was it? Well, no one ever else. I think so. No one else ever wrote a negative piece in the Times. Yeah. Yeah. Like no, it was did. a very, and it was early. It was, I didn't realize. January 2018. You, you, you like came out there when everybody was still very starry eyed about all of this. You, you went on with Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss was your editor on that piece? Am I yeah, that we right? went on. Yeah. Um, and you went on MSNBC or something like that. Or one of those. Right. Right. 
and, and um, maybe since I'm not Twitter connected at all, I feel if I were connected to Twitter, I wouldn't write half the stuff I write. Yes. Because there is a vindictive groupthink mass out there waiting to attack. Um, I felt really strongly about it. I felt the women I knew, they can all be atypical, even like very strong feminists, like Carol Gilligan. We were talking about how half of it was vindictive. How could you put together a wine and someone who said you look good in your skirt? But I, that was the same period in which I decided to go ahead with the novel and finish it. I did consider at a friend's suggestion acknowledging me too and saying I had put the book away. But in the end, I said it before me too mm -hmm. anyway. And I don't know if that helped me finish it, but I wanted to write it whether it was of the moment or not. Well, it's interesting that you were, that was the catalyst to finish it, because I think a lot of us awakened from, into, that's why we started the, the, the Femsplainers, was sudden this fervent new, both energy and challenge to feminism and, and women's rights um, and sex. And um, I'm interested how it pr provided you the catalyst, because the themes or the characters which are involved, I don't want to say sadomasochistic because that would put it in a kind of 50 shades of gray. It's, I'm sorry, your character is in love with a mentally masochistic, can we just yes. say jerk? Right, I can't. A bit of an asshole. And I think that's a very toxic. common- He was toxic before the, his time. But, but yet, right. but his allure, right. you know, the bad boy, blah, blah, blah. He was very, I think every young woman, and, and, and it's written in the context of a 28 to 30 year old woman, um, every woman has had that relationship, I think. Every yeah. woman has experienced that kind of draw to the wrong person, the man who seems to understand her, the man who just sexually ravages her in ways that are almost unspeakable. Right. And, and, and so how does... I mean, it, to read that post V2, where we can't now even watch movies where people are hugging each other. Um, what, right. what was the catalyst, no. the creative catalyst? Well, it's, interesting. It's, it's interesting that you, it was important to me to not make it physically sadomasochistic, mm -hmm. because I don't think you can call psychological... I mean, you need, as a woman, as a young woman, a certain amount of masochism and maybe self-dislike to get involved with a jerk who happens to be sexually experienced. So I think it does require a certain giving up of power. But I think the, the Me Too movement with its depiction of women as solely the objects of predatory men, as not having any sexual desire of their own. That seemed to be written out of Me Too. Um, 
to me, the victim predator paradigm so reduced relations between men and women. I think I also said in the piece, I found it a throwback to more, um, you know, times when we were more condemning of sexual life. It just made me think, truthfully, I have to finish the book anyway, but it also worried me that someone called me Monday morning at eight and said, you got a rave in the Times. And I said, no, I didn't. I hadn't read it. I kept thinking it was going to be given to some woke, rapidly woke, probably should all be excised, um, millennial who would tear it apart limb by limb. I also think Me Too doesn't allow in like all movements. People have different configurations, different unconscious lives, different modes of desire. To put it all down as the woman is basically chaste, to use the Me Too word, agency-less, and this is all about the man being the complete initiator, doesn't strike me as honest. Mm -hmm. So that was part of my, what impelled me. It, it's funny you used the word power a minute or so ago, and I feel like that's a word that has just been it's at once been fetishized and completely diluted. It's constantly uh, used in the context of, well, there is, there is a power hierarchy that is fairly static across populations, across situations. And, you know, the fact is that power is fluid. It's constantly shifting between people. So there does seem to be, in a lot of the Me Too discussions, the premise is that the man, by definition, has more power than the woman, by definition. Right. And it's so limiting and uh, no, I think I think it's really true. Yeah. And the thing with that kind of relationship, I mean, I, I first of all, let me just say I love the book. It was I, I loved it on so many different levels, including like the time and the place. So I will, I want to get to yeah. that. But yeah. you know, just that kind of relationship, we have all had that, maybe more than one time, you know. And it's like part of the allure of it is that this guy is sort of abusing you in a way, emotionally, psychologically, whatever, but there is a feeling of power to be derived from that sort of energy. You right. have an idea about yourself. He makes you feel differently about yourself or like a different kind of person or a more dramatic person or a more daring person. And there's power in that, that I think you can take with you into the future and use for your own good. I agree. I think one other part of it for me was obsession by its nature. I mean, ultimately, jerk that he is, he's obsessed with her. Mm -hmm. Right. At least sexually. And that makes you the object of constant attention. Mm -hmm. Most people don't walk around being on someone else's mind all the time. And that was something that this woman I'm not saying me, I mean, she's partly me, wanted for whatever reason. That she, I think somewhere I say she wants to be in a kangaroo pocket, kangaroo's pocket. 
But isn't that also That's true? A great it's a metaphor. Where, but it's a it's a it's a universal metaphor too, because I think, and this is where the Me Too movement doesn't take into account, as any movement really can't, the messiness of emotions True. and human lives and experience. And, and it's not a one size fits all. And I think what you captured um, that women want a man who is confident, but they also have a desire to be taken care of. And so when such a powerful male figure as this character was, even though like your your fictional friend Celia could just see the alarm, you know, your friends all go, hey, that guy's trouble, you got to get away from him. But that that sense of um, I want I want to be loved like a woman, but I also want to be kind of taken right. care of because I want love and and I love this man's confidence, which I think is a real problem for younger women today and the men out there women are scared to want that kind of desire that. and sex and, and you men are afraid to give it or act like, anyway. That, men are really afraid to offer it. Right, yeah. right. They freak out if you, you know, demanded something like that. Um, good reason. But it's also, and Megan, True. you've talked, I think we've talked about this when you were on the podcast, but as a general thing, also see our views of Me Too and sex are very generational. Um, as you pointed out, Daphne, you were worried uh, woke, meaning some 24-year-old was going to review this book and, and tear it apart. Why do you think, I mean, it's a little funny to be grandma, as it were, you know, to these young and saying, you guys don't have enough sex. You don't know what passion is, you know. Uh, don't you like it when a man rips off your clothes? I mean, they think we're insane when when we we say that. They, they, they how did this happen? <laughs> why why are we now, you know why is there this tension? Yeah, I think there's so many things in play. So wait, Daphne, I want to ask you: Is the book set in the '80s or the '90s? '90s. The '90s. Okay. That's what I thought. So, and that's part of the reason that it was so delicious to me because I was in my 20s in the 90s for like the entire 90s. I was 20 in 1990. Wow. So I, you know, and I actually had this revelation recently where, you know, people used to say, you know, people complain about how terrible the world is for women, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say something like, well, would you rather be a woman today in 2020 or in 1920? Oh, okay. But you know what? I actually think it might have been better to be a woman in 1990 than in 2020 because there was, it was like there was this sweet spot. We, we had all our rights and we were empowered and we were taking over the world, et cetera, but social media hadn't come along. Wow. Digital media hadn't come along. There was not this ubiquitous online pornography. It was really a, a something to behold. There wasn't this extreme hyper femininity that I think wow. is a real tyranny with these women now. And I think that's what's causing a lot of this. So I actually, you know, I've been thinking about this for several years and, and I have become more generous um, toward younger people in my thinking because like, it's, it's really hard right now to, to right. navigate these waters. Well, there was a piece, I didn't think it was, I shouldn't go into my critical self that it wasn't so well done, but it was on 
it was well done, let me say that. It was in the Atlantic on how few women are having sex. Yes, it was Kate yeah. Julian. She was on the she was on the pod. We discussed that. Yes. It was a great piece. Yeah. And I read it and thought there's something sad about all this. It's so sad. Because because first of all, I think I wrote in my Me Too piece, if consent is so part of the package, it's a little like mother may, you know, that old game, mother, you know, may, may I take the next step? Yeah, affirmative consent is a big mother may I game. I mean, right. who is going to find it seductive, even among 20, 30 years old, 30 year olds, for a man to say, may I kiss you? I mean, yes, in the beginning, maybe, you know, if you're not, you've done not, you've not kissed, but to ask about every step to yeah. me would seem inherently about as erotically exciting <laughs> as a- Putting together something from Ikea. <laughs> Does this go here? Oh my gosh. No wonder they never get it done. Yes, there's no, no completing it. But, but do, you, is, do you think that they really do that? This is the thing. No. Like, no. Is that really going on in all their sexual encounters? I think the problem well, is we wouldn't know. there aren't sexual encounters is the problem. That, like, that's, right. there, yeah. there aren't as many. I, I'll put in an ad for the 80s too. And I think that it was sort of great to be a, a young woman is I, I think because we were still riding on 70s feminism, we were still working out the repercussions of the sexual revolution and how they weren't always going to redound to our favor, but, but yet you still had that headiness of female empowerment, but men and women and being separate genders and sex being exciting and something you didn't have to feel ashamed of. And that... Right. It's it's like the me too. I guess just as seventies feminism reflected its time, there's something very law-like and bureaucratic and politically correct about the Me Too movement in its demands for, as you say, those direct you know levels of consent and legalistic. I guess is the word I want. Also, I think a return to puritanism. Mm -hmm. It's a very puritanical approach. I mean, I don't think erotic life is meant to be dictated or prescribed. And I think the minute you do that, which Me Too has partly succeeded in doing, it denudes it of individuality. Um, there's some sense of disapproval mm -hmm. of sex underneath it all. I have felt, you know, it's not directly stated, but it's a little a return to women who were like, you know, Victorian creatures wearing crinolines who would faint at the idea of sex. And we're in constant jeopardy from, yes. from men yes. in the world. But Daphne, like, where do you think it comes from? What's the root cause? I somewhat think Danielle has a point. I, I think there's a point. I think it's a, an almost unconscious rebellion 
or argument with the sexual revolution mm -hmm. that somehow it didn't serve women. I think it's a slight, since a lot of these younger women, I mean, a few of them have said to me, no, I would never call myself a feminist. Is it distancing from feminism? But I think feminism was seen as in and, of, in and of itself suspect because it um, didn't get rid of men. Mm -hmm. It tried for more egalitarianism, which got, I think, mutated into women would dictate it. But I don't know if that explains, I'm never clear myself. I think it originated obviously in Hollywood, which is always known as having a casting couch, as we all know. Right. That was part of Hollywood. Women are hired for their looks, primarily. I always think of Marilyn Monroe, because she fascinates me, who was always accused of sleeping her way to the top, and her agent, Johnny Hyde, she was involved with till his death. But I don't know if I find it so shocking, Hollywood. Women are objectified, to use an old-fashioned term, in Hollywood terms. I think it began there. With well, it began in nature. It began with, with bio I mean, Hollywood is a reflection of, right. of nature. I mean, women are valued when they're young. I mean, right. I, I hate to sound like an evolutionary psychologist, but there's certainly some, there's evolutionary biology for starters. So I, I am always curious, there are, it's almost like there's this project now to socially engineer things out of the culture that are really just in our DNA. Great. And it's, it's frustrating because you can't say, you know, you can state a fact uh, that we all wish were not the case, but it's true. Stating the truth of something is not the same as endorsing it. And that's a distinction that is often lost. With businesses moving many of their operations off-site and having to make tough decisions about their employees, why not consider using Bambi for your HR and save money? Because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, -E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policy to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, -day, all for $99 a month. Month-to-month, -month, no hidden fees, you can cancel at any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help and get your free HR audit today. So go to Bambi.com slash FEM right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash fem, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot -E com slash fem.
I think the culture has become more obsessed, whether it's through the complete darkness of Jeffrey Epstein's approach, obsessed with young women. I think that's always been true. (laughs) But more than ever, if it's more than ever, I want to hear because I feel like I'm noticing it more than ever, but that's because I'm not young anymore. (laughs) I think it's Danielle. I mean, this is my take on it, watching the world. Very rich men, mostly invariably you read, are with a woman 30 years younger. Yes, for sure. Not every... Um, I'm not sure women themselves having contributed to this because nubileness starts ever earlier with, and I think the whole, not to sound too convoluted, I think the whole um, waxing, whatever they do these days, what did they used to call it when a line was left? You know, oh, the treasure trail or the landing strip? Right. <laughs> There's a number of terms. On, um, Not, I don't know why I know them. No, on, <laughs> so, so, now we know, Megan. Yes. Oh, it's not the treasure trail. Sorry, that's something else. Yeah, that's, that's something. Yeah. The, land, the landing strip, yes. Yes, right. I think that's women colluding, truthfully, in making themselves prepubescent. Oh, yeah. You take away the signs of being a a mature, a woman who has developed sexually, and you leave her sort of androgynous, young. Danielle, I know you don't, I, I don't think it was as extreme in the 80s and 90s that the younger you got, the better. Well, a, a, a couple of thoughts. I, I think a part of that is the, the, the part you're talking about infantilizing or making women look like androgynous young boys. I think that comes from the impact of gay culture on fashion. That if you look at it and who are styling and who is doing the styling, um, I think that had a lot to do with that. As with sex, I think the backlash is... The sexual revolution, as great as it was to be a 23-year-old woman and say, I can do what I want, um, it, 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 it severed responsibility from the man that, that he used to only be able to have this kind of sex or level of sex if he was, you know, respectably without going. That's why they had, you know, as I think you wrote about in your book, prostitutes to take care of the more carnal desires of men. But if you wanted a respectable woman, you had to give something back. And, and as for younger women and rich men, I used to tell, you have, you have, do- you have a daughter, Daphne, right? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I would tell them if you are an attractive 22, 23 year old, in terms of sexual power, you are a billionaire. Like, Women and men have, like, the guy's money is his power, even if he's 55 or whatever. And the woman, a 23-year-old woman who is even moderately attractive is at least a millionaire, you know? And she has such sexual power to wield. And I think there's 
sensed a loss of that, that we don't have that, that we, we have, we're all liberated to have sex, but it leads to nothing except broken hearts or obsessive uh, romances or, or no sex at all. I, like, I think there's the broken promise of it is sex has ceased to be fun and exciting and novel. It's, it's something that's scary if you're a 2018 or 22 year old woman and right. so, and, and right. you don't want to have these kinds of relationships. So just best to avoid it and watch, you know, the housewives series at home. It's, yeah. it's, that's, what's worrisome. I think. I think one point you brought up that isn't brought up enough. I've written a lot, a lot about fashion. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I went to Paris to see the 25th anniversary of Chanel. And I sat in a room with Carl Lagerfeld Oh, wow. And a model came out, and I was in a state of disbelief. I said, how old is she? Yeah. She was barely developed. She was neo-anorexic. I think high-end fashion designs for enormously thin, preferably unchesty women and it's made the female model so unwomanly. Yes. Because a lot of that has been X'd out. Right. No breasts, but that, no hair. I think that's the, yeah, the, the, the androgy, looking like an adolescent boy in high fashion is the standard and it has been for a long time, but we have this reaction to it now where we have the extreme curviness, the, the kind of online hypersexuality. And I- Kardashian model. But it, it, right, but it's funny because, you know, there is a sort of body positivity aspect to that, but it's also really unattainable in a completely different sort of way. And it's also just as desexualized as the flat-chested boy model. So it's like, it's kind of just too, sides of you know different sides of the same coin yeah i like, also think sorry yeah, go ahead sorry. go ahead no i was thinking what megan's referring to to me the idealized ideal woman now i was thinking about kate hudson how they all have breast implants yeah they're tiny in every way and then have gazooming breasts and a gazooming posterior <laughs> That's the Ooh. thing that freaks me out. Well, I was in LA well, and I saw now. my first butt implants in a woman. And it was very <laughs> obvious. I mean, it's like fake breasts, except it's down there. She was wearing yoga pants and it, it, was, it was freakish. It was like a cartoon of a woman. It was like some old Looney Tunes thing where they do the exaggerated behind and then the exaggerated front. And it was, but it was as every in every way a bit misogynistic. Like I, I used to think, I, I think of those young boy images of women in fashion as, as, as a kind of misogyny that, 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 <laughs> that some of these designers are taking out yeah. on women. They're trying to make you look as ugly and unfeminine as possible. Right. And then you have this other extreme that is like a cartoon of femininity and it's totally. misogynistic well, I saw it. I saw it up totally. I saw it up front and close because of the many odd things I've written about. I wrote about the Kardashians. I did one piece where I went out to Calabasas where they lived. Mm-hmm. 
and met the killer mother, Chris, who is responsible for their success. And what did he used to be, Bruce? Bruce, Caitlin. Caitlin, don't, don't, don't dead name. Don't dead name. Don't dead name. Nicole will be canceled. But I came, oh, he was, was yet Bruce. Okay, he was then Bruce. Okay, fair. But I remember coming home and saying to my closest friend, I know this sounds nuts, but I think he's becoming a woman <laughs> because he seemed so feminized. But then I was asked to write a piece about Kim. Yeah. And it was for Elle, and they wanted to try and dress her elegantly, which is hardly her trademark. Right. I was in a studio with her. She walked around, if not totally nude. I have never seen in my life, whatever word you want to use, a butt like that. It was... It's not it natural, a, right? It's not, it's not oh. of birth. No. It was never though, but she had some, she had some material to work with. But, though, but right? to have a waist I mean, like this and then hips like this and then go in again, human bi biology can't attain that naturally. What, no, so what, what was I it like? What did it look like naked? If that doesn't sound pervy to ask. I'm curious. No, I looked, I looked very hard myself. <laughs> it looked what you're saying not Cupid doll, but like a parody. And I agree with Danielle. I don't think, I'm not sure Megan, she had all that to work with because the figure, the body goes completely in mm. the waist and suddenly kazooms out. It looked to me unwieldy. You could never make her look elegant because it was a sort of if this is what men like, it was a sort of tawdry dream woman. Mm -hmm. And in her case, it was so disproportionate. I think she had some of it taken out. Yeah, well, like I the Elizabethan, that. was it the Elizabethans who came really in and, and would even want to remove ribs oh, and then, and then come out like, and, like yeah. Chesterfields or whatever. They, like, so it's, it's, it's sort of like a modern version of, of that, but... Yeah, definitely. I can't think very comfortable to walk around in. Like to make to make yourself look this way because that's what pleases men. And then, by definition, if you look that way, you can't be taken seriously. If, if you're incapable of being elegant or looking professional or whatever it is, it's like such a bind, so so to speak, right? Like it's it's I don't know. It was just a thought I had. Like you really can't win. Well, it's also, it's no. like we're trying to acknowledge your sexual power in this cartoonish way. And yet, yeah. if, and then, but then don't let anyone seduce you. Like, I'm, I'm not using this sexual power to get male attention, okay? It's, it's me. Right. I, I, it's, I, I own it, right. Yeah, it's I me. own I it. I chose my choice. Yeah. That yeah. whole word that came into, I don't know when it came into endless repetitive usage was this, objectification, mm -hmm. the male gaze. Remember, mm -hmm. it was all right. the fashion right. to talk endlessly about the male gaze. To me, it's also, what about the woman who wants to elicit the male gaze? Mm -hmm. The male gaze isn't all a violation. 
I remember because I just was going through ancient papers and found when I was at Barnard, I wrote a lot of poetry and there was a poem called In Praise of Wolf Whistles, in which I said I liked being leered at. I, I, wrote, I wrote, I I used to edit a magazine and a woman named Ann Muggridge, uh, daughter-in-law of the late Malcolm White, wrote an essay for Malcolm, my magazine yeah. called In Praise of the Wolf Whistle too. It, it was, it yeah, was, I've had many students write that piece yeah, in no, recent was, years too. But it was, it was not this, I mean, it's, look, it can be intimidating and horrible and leering and nobody yeah. likes that. But for her, oh. and I think what, Daphne, what you saw, it's, she, she said, she wrote that she only got it wolf whistled when she was like very young, but also she was emotionally happy, like she was walking down the street right. in that way that only a young uh, blue no. woman can do. And, and, it, and it was a kind of acknowledgement of the whole, not just her ass or something, but the whole beautiful female youthful spirit. Uh, yeah, no, you right. can't say that now. That's super. No, and I also think you're correct. You don't get wolf whistles if you're desolate. You know, <laughs> desolately walking down the street. No one is going to, yeah, no, I guess now, um, that's all not whatever they say, water under the bridge. I mean, but I've had, sorry, I've heard young, I've had young women tell me that there's a sort of competition among each other. They complain about being catcalled on the street, but it's also a subtle way of letting, it's a humble brag. It's letting it be known that you were whistled right. at and yeah. they're sort of keeping track. Well, what's funny about all this, I, I taught a class at Columbia's MFA program last year, which many people said to me, how did you get this course through? It was called The Literature of Eros. Mm. And I think I began the class in my somewhat contrarian, confrontational way. And I said, this is a class about reading erotic literature. So I would like to leave terms like consent, the whole vocabulary of political correctness aside. One woman left the class, it was the first class, and they all also wrote about sex essays. Megan, you must have had, now I thought- I probably had some of the same students. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was, there were two themes. A sort of indifference about the boyfriend and then enormous, uh, uh, when, when there was a faculty meeting and you were supposed to say what you got from the class, I said, I discovered that the new foreplay is choking. They were oh my choking God. each other. What? It's terrible. That's from the, that's from the, um, that's from the pornography. Yes. Really choking? Never I, heard I, of it until my students, it's true. These are, yes. these are it's all these over are, the place. I want to say normal students, these are like, People you'd see yes. walking down the street and suspect not those nice lady young women of the Upper East Side are, well, a, are facing choking yeah. now. Is that right? Oh my. I mean, I would God. say five out of a majority wrote about that without any affect, also. It wasn't, oh, he tried to choke me and I was horrified. It happened as part of the ongoing seduction. And I thought yeah. to myself, is this an improvement? No. So you mean they, it was written almost with detachment? 
it was like yeah. as if this is just what happens. We went to the movies, we had popcorn, we kissed in the car afterwards, and then he choked me, and then I went home. Like, well, it's one. It's kind of part effect. of foreplay. It's one of the bases. You know, okay, so that you know, oh it's like God. second base. It's it's you know second base. Is it third base? <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's third a and a half. Completely different base. game. I, it sounds more like hockey. When they're <laughs> this is like they change the rules of baseball. There's I, a you know designated hitter. I, now I feel really. No, old. I, it comes. Well, I feel old too, but this comes from the online pornography, and it's hugely. Uh, it's just de rigueur. And a lot of the campus sexual assault cases revolve around that particular right. action. I believe that the um, Emma Silkowitz, the woman who was, you know, carrying the mattress around, I think part of her claim uh, involves that that yeah. activity. Yeah. Well, and now, and here we're sitting. I mean, I'm so naive. Here we're sitting, wondering why. Why do young women want to have more sex? And like, oh, because aside from you know pornographic levels of oral sex that they are now expected to provide. They also get to get choked. So maybe it's not such a I mystery. Think, I think also, what was that book I read? It was excellent. Sorry. The hookup culture yes. basically goes against romance and For sex sure. being aligned. So if you're completely, first of I mean, that book argued, which I think I agree with, that women still romanticize sex. Maybe, Megan, you've met, still think sex is about something more than... But they can't admit it. It's unfeminist to admit that. Right. For sure that's true. Right. No, and that's what you were saying. Like, you can't, or Megan, you were saying, like, you can put out rules and platitudes and everything, but you, we are going through this more than ever transformational idea of gender and trying to deny, you know, white is white, black yeah. is black. It, it, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And, um, uh, but I wanted to get to Woody Allen, whom you um, know well, and you were recently in the news. I mean, you, you've had obviously such an interesting life, met so many interesting people, but you were in, like, even we had booked you already to come on and talk about this novel, Daphne, but then you were suddenly in the news. I was reading about you. Um, I think right. even in the, in the, in the um, uh, Daily Mail. Uh, so tell us about your, because I'm reading right. Woody Allen's <laughs> right. book right now, apropos of nothing. And I've got, I thought I should, and I, I've got a lot of thoughts on it, but, yeah, you, but the way it tied into, well, first older men and younger women, but also Ronan Farrow, the Me Too reporting. So tell us about your experience, and, and we can put it in that I, context. First of all, I wasn't such great friends with him. Right. That was put in because of Ronan Farrow, and I had written the piece. Oh, yeah, you have to set it up. You set it up. So this was how long ago? Two summers ago. I would sometimes, not so often, have dinner with Woody Allen. He usually did not bring Sun Yi. This was about the second time he brought Sun Yi, who struck me as smart. I hope she doesn't watch this, a little chilly. And I suddenly said to her, partly because I forget what I know about Woody Allen, 
I've never bought into the whole story at all of his fingering or whatever they claimed Dylan. The, the rape said, of his what? daughter or the molestation of his daughter when she yeah. was what? Seven. Five? Seven. Five? I said, yeah. yeah. Maybe five. I said to Sun Yi, why don't you tell your story? You've never been heard from. And she, and I guess he thought about it for a while because she had been approached before. And then they decided, they agreed. I did endless interviews. I felt like Cy Hirsch on a lower level as I schlepped Connecticut to interview two ex-housekeepers who told me monstrous details about the relationship between Mia Farrow and Ronan, um, including, and I think there were hospital documents that she had his legs, I think I wrote this to you, Megan, or not, that she had his legs broken cosmetically. And then, you know, what are they called, put in? Metal. Yeah, metal splints or whatever interior, yeah, rods, yeah. This is for the purpose of what? To make and him, when did this happen, allegedly? To make him taller? Make him taller so he could be a political figure. Is that true? Um, I, I, mean, I can't even believe it. Like, that's insane. You had, I think it's true. You had, you had. I mean, those, I've heard those rumors, but it's just like uh, remarkable if it's true. Well, he claims he that Mia Farrow that. tried to keep nursing Ronan Farrow till 11 or something. She did. She did. Yeah. Very, very late. He slept in her bed. I'm not suggesting they had. Yeah. This was the housekeepers who were petrified of Mia Farrow till about 10 or 11. Um, she, he was totally her, her construction. He also had a lot of face surgery. That, that has been, I don't think everyone goes on about it. I don't actually believe he's Frank Sinatra's son. Probably because she did not continue. She did not continue to have a relationship with Frank Sinatra. I met him when he was a boy, when he was still, what was his name? Satchel? Satchel. Yeah. Satchel Page. He looked much more, I mean, he was a cute looking boy who you could imagine was Woody Allen's son. He also wears very, very blue lenses. When I interviewed Sun Yi and a bit Woody, but mainly Sun Yi, the details about Mia Farrow's treatment of the adopted children, two of whom committed suicide, a third of who a third of whom a third child is missing, were pathological in the extreme. Specifically, her non-interest in these adopted children. And Moses Farrow has come out, it's been paid no attention, I don't know why, he's come out with a long document about how abusive Mia was. Huh. But the reason it was in the news is because this there's a slow fissure in the wall around Ronan 
you know, with the Ben Smith article in the Times. Yeah, I'll just summarize that, that, that Ben Smith, who's now the media columnist, founder of Politico, now the media columnist for the New York Times, wrote a piece. I, I'm a little mistrustful of some of the reporting, but I, I get the concept that there's like cracks in the armor of Ronan Barrow that maybe ex he exaggerated a bit, or, or as, as we were talking about earlier, did not acknowledge any of the complexities in some of these relationships. Oh. Um, but sorry, go on. So, and, and anyway, that piece came out. So, and that's where that caught you up in this, this controversy. Well, Ben Smith called me and we had an hour conversation and he told me something I didn't even know. He said when I was right, I knew when I had started the piece, Ronan called Adam Moss. I never knew what he said to Adam Moss. Ben Smith did know and said, he said... Um, Adam Moss was the, the editor of the New York uh, New York, New York Magazine. Of New York Magazine. For whom you were writing this piece two years ago, just Sorry, to be clear. Yes, okay. Piece, right. Which many of my well-meaning friends said, don't do it. You'll be tarnished forever. Maybe I was. And... Ronan called very early Adam Moss and told him, Dave, um, Ben Smith knew this, that um, Sunyi was mentally not deficient mm -hmm. and shouldn't be listened to. Um, ben Smith also knew that Ronan was bullying throughout the process I may be, I don't know, not wrongly, maybe it's my pseudo, you know, I must expose <laughs> the injustices of the world, but I watched Ronan, what went on with my piece. I had never experienced anything like it. I've written about other contentious, uh, the Kabbalah Center mm -hmm. in LA, they threatened to sue the Times. This when was I like Scientologists or something. This just yeah. again to make sure people are following. So you had written, you got this exclusive profile of Sunyi, right. and it was. I think you were promised it would be on the cover by Adam Moss, the editor, and then Ronan. Yeah. What you're saying is that Ben Smith subsequently reported recently that um, the Ronan Farrow got wind of it, and then he, you say, bullied. Adam Moss, not to, put, to pull it completely or? Yes. Pull it off not the cover? Yeah. And, and said because Sunyi was mentally. No, that was, Sorry. That came very early. The yeah. cover was a later decision. Okay. And what was particularly striking is the magazine was supposed to close on a Wednesday. Somehow Ronan, I don't know who told him, looked up an essay I wrote in a collection called The Fame Lunches, in which yes. I said I identified with wounded famous people, that I was a non-groupie for non-celebrities. And I said that I had had a lunch or two with Woody Allen, and I had been very depressed, and he said you should get ECT, you know, you know, electroshock therapy? Woody Allen suggested you get electroshock therapy? And I thought, my God, doesn't he realize 
I'm creative and you could have moods, but he just said, I think you should have. And we didn't, that didn't end. Had he had it? No. (laughs) I mean, I I know Dick Cavett is a big um, proponent and I was anyway scared of it. Um, Yeah. But that was sort of the end. You know, I saw him little, I was never invited to a Christmas, famous Christmas party. I would say he was an acquaintance of some history. Ronan found that piece. I have no idea how. It was included in the fame lunches. It was the title piece. And Ronan either faxed, no one uses faxed any faxes. No, no, only doctor's offices, yeah. People in your novel. (laughs) Right. Um, emailed or called New York and said I was a besotted fan. And in response to that, it was very shrewd of him. I said to my editor, if I do this, this will be used to attack the story. I had to change. I've known Woody Allen for over four decades to I've been a good friend Woody Allen for over four decades, which is not true. Mm -hmm. Ronan then used that to attack the piece, which is why I didn't want to do it, aside from it being untrue. And the last day, they took out everything the housekeeper said. The last day I sat with, which I've also never done. I mean, I wrote stuff for the New Yorker that they vetted, but I didn't sit for three hours with two lawyers, as I did from New York Magazine, who went over every single word. Again, a lot was taken out. The fear of Ronan, I found maybe clarifying. I mean, the abuse of power by someone who's supposedly, you know, a muckraking journalist, but he went to many and then I was told, I was asked to call Mia Farrow to run the story by her. She didn't ever answer. They said I never ran it by her. Sorry, Danielle, I think the time is coming no, to no, an end. Yeah. So when the Ronin thing came up again with Ben Smith, he interviewed me for an hour. He ended up including none of it. And I decided I want to say something about this that Ronan isn't only not such a great journalist. I hear he's completely rewritten at the New Yorker. I have no idea if that's true, but went to great lengths to stop a woman from talking. Yeah. And I just found it an abuse of power. Well, one of the things- And pretty- Right, and one of the things I, I, thought pertaining to his reporting, which was um, when the Harvey Weinstein trial was going on, and there was, we did a, we did a, we talked about it on the podcast, but there was so little coverage of the kind that you would think this trial of the century would be. Like to hear the details of the testimony, which, look, Harvey Weinstein abused power as a pig where no one is defending Harvey Weinstein and I'm sure it's a great thing he ends up in prison whatever but again this nuance that the, the testimony of the I mean if there was what 99 women that 
Pharaoh found, and you end up with these two, you know, cases that are so flimsy. And it's not to say Harvey Weinstein didn't do all this stuff, but as a legal case, it was, it was, it was shocking, but it was, and I think with Woody Allen reading his book, I mean, I think his, the truly wicked, and I use that word carefully, the truly wicked thing he did was to break his pact as a stepfather to a child. It, it doesn't, you know, the, the, we, we all are pretty certain he has a creepy interest in very, very young girls, which from his movies. And, right. and so that, you know, that doesn't resound to his defense. But then to just his stepfatherness of Sun, of Sun Yi. Yes, I mean he wasn't. She was not his stepdaughter technically. But you no, mean the, but but you're 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 raiding the nest. De facto, and and, yeah. and you are supposed to. I mean, even though look, I, get, I think you learn from this book how crazy he is, how crazy their whole relationship was, and and now we hear from you, Daphne, how crazy she, you know, the household was. But in the end, look, Sun Yi was what nineteen or something to. 21? She was 20. To his, what, 50-something? Talk about 30 years between yeah. rich men. But, you know, no. okay, fine, like, you can have your opinions on that. But I, I felt that he, no, I agree. he did I betray a, a, a pact. And, and I can see that would drive I any woman. saw her. Yeah, but I can see I that that would drive any woman insane. Like if if that was my like not only not only have you cheated on I me, agree. you've cheated on me with my daughter. Like that's pretty that's pretty Greek, you know, like of the Greek mythology. That that just but I also Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, that was my takeaway of it. Right. I'm not excusing it. I said in my piece it's very morally questionable what he did. Sun Yi said she agreed that it was a betrayal of Mia Farrow. Yeah. Woody Allen, who I described in my piece, which thank goodness he never reads anything about himself, as Aspergian. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really relate. So I once said to him, instead of being angry at Mia Farrow, she had many affairs, she treated him badly, Instead of being angry, I think he ended up doing this. Yeah. And I don't think it's forgivable. I will say on their behalf, they have an excellent marriage. Well, and soon Yi, it would also be her revenge if, if the household was yes. as you described. Well, one of the things I take away from his book, not so much as Aspergian, but it's why, my opinion, I don't think he's as good a filmmaker as he was a comedian. And it's because he's really not interested okay. in anybody else, <laughs> and, you know, okay. and, 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 and he has this way of like, if he wants something, he doesn't, I want it. You know, he doesn't have this moral. So odd you no. say this because he has a modest demeanor. Right. Behind which is a diva. Exactly. But it's, yes. hard, mm. it's hard to read him that way. He's yes. very used to calling all of the shots. Yeah. Very. It's, I mean, what is one of his most famous lines is one of his most famous sentiments. Why do people keep getting into these relationships? Why? Because you, you need the eggs. Like, you just want it, full stop, period, right? Right. right. That was right. what was behind that line. True. 
And the book is very True. funny and entertaining, but it is, yeah, there is a little bit, oh, okay. Uh, all right. It shows uh, very little for a man who's been, whatever you think of psychoanalysis, for a man who's been in psychoanalysis. <laughs> so little self, well, yeah, yeah. But for, for 60 years, how long has he been in it? Well, I, I beat him sadly, but he has so little self-awareness. Yeah. That's yeah. what comes through in the book. Right. And that's what comes through as a creative talent. That's you also, you also see that. Um, all right. Well, one well, of the you. moments in your piece. Oh, no, go ahead, no, Megan. Sorry. Mind. No, one more oh, question. I was just going to say, no, Daphne, no, this gets to the, this gets to the uh, Aspergerian thing just really quickly. Like one of the moments I remember in your New York magazine piece, Daphne, was when he's describing meeting Mia Farrow and finding her attractive or what brought them together. And doesn't he say something like, well, you know, she seemed, she presented herself well and yeah, she yeah. seemed like she had it together. So therefore I'm going to partner with her. It was so right. clinical. Right. Yeah. Right. Remarkable. That's true. It's amazing. Okay. Well, I, I, I hope, I hope, I always love <laughs> having a whole other episode on this. I, I know, I know. I feel like we, we, we had all these plans to talk about so many things, but I hope, Daphne, we can have you back on Femsplaining because it's, you're just endlessly interesting. Love, love the novel. And Megan, just a quick plug, you're, you. you're starting your own podcast, correct? Yes, I'm starting my own podcast, um, hopefully at the end of July, and it's called The Unspeakable and it's an interview show. I'm going to just be having free-ranging, long conversations, just like this, as a matter of <laughs> fact. Oh, it's so, in your competition, um, so we won't plug you, Megan. I'm not, no, I, uh, we, there, can't, there can't be enough of them. Uh, we need more of Wait. these. So I'm going to be talking to you know, all kinds of people, writers, scholars, scientists. Love the name. I, I love so. both names. I yes. think FEMS, how did you think of it? It's such a... We went through it. Like a mansplaining. Of, I know. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. sort of a, an irreverent take on mansplaining. And when we have male guests I on, oh. we do introduce them as mansplainers, which some don't get it. We're being fondly saying that. And right. anyway. Right. All right. Well, thank you both. Uh, and you so uh, stay safe and good luck. Congratulations, with Daphne. Daphne. Novel. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. I Take enjoy care. This. Okay. Take care. Bye. 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 That's it for now. Um, hope you enjoyed that. And uh, again, please remember um, to try support us if you can at patreon.com slash femsplainers or glow.com slash femsplainers. Next week, I'm super excited to welcome on Anne Applebaum. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic. And as many of you know, she's been on before. She's, she's a good friend. Um, in her new book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which sounds very high-minded, which it is, um, is also just a whole deep, incredible look at friendship in this time of political extremism. When We were teasing her that she should really have called the book why you don't speak to your friends anymore, why your friends aren't speaking to you. It's a fascinating analysis of how politics has 
entered the culture, but also the minds and of our friends and the relationships we subsequently have. And she's got many very public figures who she kind of dissects. And I'm going to be joined for that one as a co-splainer and bringing on certainly my favorite mansplainer, David Frum. So we'll, uh, we'll have that for you next week in the third of our series, uh, a summer series with authors. And, uh, and goodbye. Goodbye for now. <laughs>